Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello and welcome to the show. It's Susan. Beckett couldn't make it today, so you just have me and the life of Loie Fuller. And here's your 30-second summary. She was born with an ordinary name into an ordinary family in an ordinary place. But through her own grit, gumption, creativity, style, and her je ne sais quoi, she spun through her life in the most extraordinary way. The end. Let's talk about Loey Fuller. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1862, in addition to a lot of activity surrounding the United States Civil War, including Julia Howe publishing The Battle Hymn of the Republic as a poem in Atlantic Monthly, Louis Pasteur began testing a process to inhibit bacteria in wine and prevent it from becoming vinegar. We now know this as pasteurization. An aerosol dispenser was first patented, and the wooden bowling ball was invented for a sport that can be traced back to 5000 BC Egypt. Otto von Bismarck was appointed Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Prussia by then-King Wilhelm I, and Vienna's first communal park, the Stadtpark, opened. Charles Dotson told a young family friend about the adventures of a character who shared her name, Alice. Edith Wharton, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Claude W.C., and William Sidney Porter, who's best known by his pen name, O. Henry, were all born. Samuel Colt and Henry David Thoreau died. And in 1862, the curtain rose on the dramatic life of Loie Fuller. Marie Louise Fuller was born on January 15, 1862, in Fullersburg, Illinois. She was the second of three children born to Reuben and Delilah Eaton Fuller. Both of Marie's parents' families stretched way back to the Revolutionary War in the United States. Papa Reuben's family had settled in New York after that, but when Papa was just a lad, most of the extended family got into their covered wagons and aimed west. They were going toward the newly established city of Chicago. Other than homesteading, their exact plans were unknown, as is a lot of the history of Reuben and Delilah, unfortunately. But we do know this. They passed by the city of Chicago and aimed towards some U.S. government-owned lands west of Chicago. The group of 13 took 17 weeks to travel west. Family lore says the group's wagons got stuck in the muddy marshlands west of Chicago proper. It's kind of funny because at that point, Chicago was little more than a few houses outside of a military fort, Fort Dearborn, which itself is located at modern-day Wacker Drive and Michigan Avenue. There's actually a plaque in the middle of the sidewalk if you're ever in that area. Look down! The Fullers pressed past that wet area for another 17 miles until they stopped getting stuck in the mud. They reached a high and dry point and staked their claims. The entire family began to farm it. Uncle Ben, who was the leader of the group, ordered himself a farmhouse, kind of like a modern-day prefabricated house. They were built in one place and then moved to another. They were called balloon frame houses. That actual Greek revival farmhouse is still there, although not exactly in the same location it was before. And it's one of the last surviving balloon frame houses in the country. Now, the town of Fullersburg never incorporated, but it was known as Fullersburg because of all the Fullers there. You settle the land, you get to name the town. And for those of you who live in the western suburbs, they're saying, there's no Fullersburg here. Right, now it is part of Hinsdale. 
Within 15 years, the town of Fullersburg was developed. And by developed, I mean it was the last stagecoach stop on what was a wooden plank road that went from Chicago all the way to Fullersburg. Eventually, it would connect onto the next wooden plank road, which is in modern-day Naperville. I keep bringing up these towns because I lived in the western suburbs of Chicago for five years. I lived in Downers Grove, which is right around here. So this was kind of exciting for me to know, oh, this is where I used to live. How about that? But the Plank Road to Fullersburg was heavily trafficked, all stopping to pay a toll. By 1850, over 500 horse and oxen teams passed by the Fullersburg Toll House every day. And by the Civil War, Fullersburg consisted of 15 to 20 houses, two hotels, three taverns, a post office, a blacksmith's shop, a school, a cemetery, and a grist mill. And now, in 2021, it's basically the area surrounding the intersection of Ogden Avenue and York Road in Hinsdale. Now, Papa Rubin's past is really fuzzy, but Mama Delilah's roots are even more invisible from here. We do know that her ancestors fought in the Revolutionary War. We do know that she was born in 1831 and that she was nicknamed Lily. Delilah became Lily, which is so cute. And when she was 19, she married then 23-year-old Reuben Fuller. And then Reuben left. He left her shortly after they were married to head even farther west to find gold. Two years he was gone, two years, and no word from him. He just finally showed back up in Fullersburg with some tall tales and even fewer factual ones about his adventures out west. What he did have was enough money to buy his own plot of land where he could raise horses and as few crops as he could get away with because he really preferred the horses to the farming. And in the winter, Papa Fuller ran the local hotspot, the Fullersburg Tavern, where he also played his fiddle wherever he could and whenever anyone asked. Delilah gave birth to her first son, Frank, and then after the couple had been married for about 11 years, it was wintertime and she was pregnant again. Now, Chicago area winters are pretty cold as a rule, but January of 1862 was extraordinarily brutally cold. For days on end, the temperatures were sustained below zero. And the farmhouse where the Fullers lived, it wasn't large, but it was pretty drafty, and it only had a fireplace to warm it. It was dangerous for the little family to live there, and even more so for a baby to be born there. So as Lily was entering her final stages of pregnancy, the family moved into the tavern. It was a place that was heated by a large wood stove. They set up a bed in the big open room, presumably formerly used for revelry and dining, but now it was a maternity ward. And that is where little Marie Louise was born. Even with the warmth of the stove, the story Lowy told later was, On that day, the frost was thick on the window panes, and the water froze in dishes, and I caught a cold at the moment of my birth, which I've never been able to get rid of. So it was cold. For Marie Louise's first month of life, the family lived in the tavern. Then the cold snap broke, they moved back to their house, and the fine folks of Fullersburg got their saloon back. Shortly after they had moved back to their house, and little Louie made what she calls her society debut. This sounds like so much fun. There was a rowdy group of Fullersburgites. It was like a uh, progressive party. They would head from house to house, grabbing people at each house to continue on to this barn party. And of course, the party needed music, and Papa Rubin was the best fiddler around. 
So when the crowd stopped by the Fullers to grab Papa, Papa grabbed Mama, who grabbed little baby Louie. At the dance hall, a little nest for Louie was made so that she could sleep. But a little while later, two men full of drink stumbled into the room, saw the baby, picked her up, brought her back to the main room, and held her high. Whose baby is this, they said. No answer. So they got louder. You know that scene from The Lion King where Rafiki holds up baby Simba? That's what these guys did. They held up little baby Louie and hollered, Whose baby is this? Finally, one of the women said, For heaven's sake, that's Lily's baby. Just put her down. Nope, said the men. She's made her entrance and is staying at the party. And they passed little Louie around to everyone at the party. For the rest of her life, that's what she called her grand entrance to society. So everything was going really well for the Fullers. They had two healthy kids. They had a good business. They were surrounded by extended family. And then in the year of Louis's birth, the railroad is coming. We talked about this in the Harvey Girls episode of how during the Civil War, which is the era we're talking about now, if you controlled the railroad, you controlled success. And that didn't just go for armies. It was true for towns as well. So any town that the railroad went through, prosperity was soon to follow. And Fullersburg had that well-established plank road running right through it. It was the path that everyone had been taking for years to get west. Of course the railroad is going to go there. But the men from the railroad didn't agree. They liked Fullersburg, but they loved a town about a mile south called Hinsdale. And that's where they decided to put their depot and have the train run through. Their prosperity from the railroad wasn't going to happen for the Fullers. That's when Papa Reuben decided that country living wasn't where his family's future lay. So when little Louie was just two... He sold the farm and bought a boarding house in the city of Chicago and moved his family there. And at this point, yes, it was a growing city. The big home was at 164 West Lake Street in Chicago, which as far as I can tell is near West Lake and North LaSalle. I mean, obviously the house is long gone. It's buildings. I mean, that's the core of the city right there. Without their family nearby, the Fullers needed to establish a new routine. And so on Sundays, instead of going to church like a lot of people did, the Fuller family head to the public Lyceum. At this point, the Lyceum movement was just about peaking. What a Lyceum was was a gathering hall with set programs. The whole idea behind it was that society is benefited by an educated and informed populace. Even the name Lyceum is rooted in nerddom. It dates back to ancient Greece, and it's where Aristotle would give his lectures. But at the 1880s modern-day Lyceums, you could hear lectures from scientists or authors. Speakers would travel from one place to another. And in addition to these educated and intelligent speakers, you could have heard a toddler Louis Fuller recite Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep on the stage. She just walked up on the stage one day and started to recite it. The audience loved it. And because they liked her opening act, little Louis broke out into song with Mary Had a Little Lamb, took a bow, went to get down from the stage, and there was these steps that she felt that she was going to fall down. So she kind of butt slid down on them like toddlers do. And for the rest of her life, Louis credits this performance at age two as the beginning of her stage career. 
Reuben and Delilah, being the progressive free thinkers that they were, insisted on an education for their children. They didn't have to. It wasn't mandatory. But little precocious, very active five-year-old Louie was sent off to public school, and she hated it. To paraphrase her, mother, I have to sit all day and learn things I could be taught in five minutes. She would sit in class, learn the lesson, and wait for the rest of the kids to catch up to her. I do have a very good friend who often feels like the smartest person in the room, and I can even see when I talk to her, she's grasped something, and she's just looking at me, waiting for me to have my aha moment, (laughs) which is what I'm going to guess was happening in little Louie's classroom. But little Louie had to trudge to school every day and grumbled about it the whole time. Two years after starting school, the Fullers had their third and last child, a little baby boy that they named Delbert. Papa Fuller was doing very well, in addition to being a horse trader and all the connotations that that word has. It's kind of meant as a, like a used car salesman or someone who is a fast talker. But he really did deal in horses. Their boarding house took in from 6 to 13 boarders. So this big house was packed. There was a five fullers. There was two teenage domestics who helped out and all of these boarders. And life cruised along pretty much at this pace until Louis was about nine. That year was 1871, the year of the Great Chicago Fire. It killed about 300 people, left more than 100,000 homeless, and destroyed 3.3 square miles of the city. The fire was sort of headed towards the Fuller's house. They could see it, but the wind direction blew it just a few blocks away, and it missed the Fuller's house. But the city needed to rebuild. Between that and a financial depression that hit the entire nation the following year, it was either that or maybe wanderlust. Reuben packed up his family and became a hotel proprietor and a dance academy owner in Monmouth, Illinois, birthplace of Wyatt Earp. Monmouth is about 200 miles southwest of Chicago. It's between Peoria and Iowa, if you're thinking about it on a map. There, little tween Louie, full of natural-born and big-city-acquired confidence, followed her family happily into Monmouth society. She went to school. She began to take a part in plays in the local theaters. She did an act for a benefit variety show to raise money for the townsfolk who were most hard hit by the Depression. When she was 13, she began to lecture in support of temperance. One day, and then the next day, she and a teenage partner won a waltz competition at a masquerade ball in town. But Louie only had a few years to build up a name for herself in Monmouth. When she was 15, Papa was ready to move on again. He sold the hotel, he shuttered the dance academy, and he moved his family again, this time to Westville, Illinois, which is kind of straight across the state if you go east, just before you hit Indiana. But don't get too comfortable there, Louie. In about a year, Reuben moved the family back to Chicago. It's unknown exactly what he did for a living. Of course, we can speculate if he was a horse trader before. Maybe he was an off-the-books horse trader. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But we do know that Mama ran a notion store, Delbert was still in school, and Frank worked as a clerk. And at 15, little Louie Fuller had had enough of school. She wanted the stage. That's where she thought her future was. 
She went around to theaters and took bit parts in any production that would hire her. She even did a little touring with a comedy troupe and at 19 signed with a touring troupe that was coming through Chicago run by one Buffalo Bill Cody. She signed on as part of his variety show. This was pre-Annie Oakley by about four years. In Buffalo Bill's variety show, she was part of a cast of a play that was part of the show that advertised itself as, quote, a soul-stirring, blood-curdling drama. It was called The Prairie Wave. And Lowy was in the right place at the right time and replaced an actress who had been playing the title role, but was too much of a diva. Here's a hint, actress whose name is lost to history. You probably shouldn't show up at the end of the first act and ask why the play started without you. So Louie got her role and she wasn't as much of a diva. Teenage Louie was cast as the waif and toured with the show wherever it went. Started in Chicago, went to Boston, all over the East Coast. She toured with them for about a year until she contracted smallpox and had to go back to Chicago. When she was well enough there, she started taking singing lessons and dreamed of becoming an opera star. She got her break in the same way that we have talked about Mary Pickford getting her break, about Maya Angelou getting her job as a streetcar conductor by showing up at the theater day after day asking for an audition. Louie was little. She was 5'1 or 5'2. She had dark blonde curly hair. But as she's asking for auditions, she's also quite dirty. She's also emaciated because she doesn't have any money to feed herself. When a theater owner took pity on her and said, okay, kid, what can you do? She said, I can do everything. I can sing. I can dance. I can act. I know Shakespeare by heart, but really, I just want to do something that will enable me to eat two or three times a day. She nailed the audition that he gave her and was signed on at $50 a week, which is about $1,400 That's a good job, Loie. I think you can eat on that. Loie later said that this happened when she was 18, but really, she was about 23. And this begins a lifelong practice of playing loose with her actual birth year. In researching, I saw a bunch of passport applications from later in life where she consistently shaved seven years off her age. I mean, she was consistent every single one, so you got to give her props for that. In her first play with this troupe in Boston, a reviewer said, quote, she created excitement and people flocked to see what the newspapers called a sensational dance, which some even called daring just because the dancer wore no corset and the muscular sway of her young figure was visible. Oh my goodness, it's 1885. That is almost scandalous. In her next big role, she played a little boy, the main character of a play called Little Jack Shepherd. Now, she was about 24 at this point, but she was so convincing in the role that the parents of a six-year-old who desperately wanted to meet the actor who played Jack brought the little girl backstage. The child refused to believe that Louis was the actress who played the role because she was in her street clothes. She wasn't dressed up as a boy. She was a woman. She had curves. She was not a boy. The child absolutely refused to believe it. So that's a pretty good review. She continued to act and sing and dance in any production that she could find. Louis based herself in New York. She began to spell her name L-O-I-E instead of L-O-U-I-E. 
instead of Marie Louise. A lot of the time, she, like in Little Jack Shepherd, she was cast as a boy, but sometimes as a woman. She was even in one production that toured Chicago so her parents could come and see her, where her character had to do what she did as a toddler and butt slide down. Well, it was a pyramid instead of stairs, but the same thing. When Louis was about 30, so she spent 10 years doing bit parts and lead roles and just acting and singing and dancing. She did burlesque type shows. She did anything she could. She wanted to produce her own play. While looking for backers, she met a man named William B. Hayes. William was hemming and hawing, and finally they reached an agreement As collateral to the loan that he was giving her, she gave him a photo of herself in a flesh-colored bodysuit and tights. And on it, it was inscribed, Pardon, monsieur, I am not dressed. And when she handed the photo, he handed her the check. And then he also put on the full courting press. He wooed her with such infamous standards as, But, my dear, I'm getting a divorce. But my dear, here is a certificate that says that I am divorced. Oh, my dear, we can only get married privately. See, I'm trying to open a bank, and I'm afraid of the fallout if my backers of this bank realize that I am marrying a burlesque star. Their boarding house New York wedding consisted of she and he and her mother, who was a witness, just signing a document that said... I, William B. Hayes, in the presence of God, do take Louis Fuller for my lawful wedded wife. And then vice versa. I, Louis Fuller, take William B. Hayes as my lawful husband. Right after the wedding, though, she headed to London to stage that play that he was backing. Louis and her mother were very close, and her mother went with her to London while Louis staged the play that William had backed. She fully expected her husband to show up and pay her hotel bills. But instead, she got poorly written love letters from him. And then he basically ghosted her, which I guess was a lot easier in 1889 across an ocean than it is now. But William did meet with her father. The two of them entered a scheme, and as soon as Reuben realized that he'd been swindled, he met with William Hayes over dinner. And during that dinner, Reuben collapsed and died. Louis and her mom, who were still in London, were highly suspicious. Physically, William was the closest kin to Reuben, but he didn't have an autopsy done and just quickly had him embalmed. That was it. And because William wasn't paying her bills, for the next few years, Louis struggled in London, then in the United States, trying to find decent roles. And Hayes, if she could get his attention, he was just continuing to distance himself from her until one day she got a cease and desist letter from Hayes's first wife, who he had never really divorced. And this first wife was none too pleased that Louis was trying to pass herself off as the Mrs. William Hayes. Ultimately, William Hayes was arrested for bigamy. And in his defense, He brought out those pictures of Louis to show the character of this woman who was accusing him of marrying her. How ridiculous. To which Louis very calmly pointed out that she was fully clad in those photos. And then a third wife appeared. Not only was she a third wife, but William had fathered a child with her. 
and promised her in writing that he would support her. And then just like he didn't pay Louis' hotel bills in London, he didn't pay this woman. So she brought him up on charges. And eventually he was imprisoned for perjury. While all this marriage drama was unfolding, Louis was still a working actress. And she took a lead role in a play called Dr. Quack, which is about what you think. In this play, she was a main character, and in part of it, she was to be hypnotized by said doctor. And as part of the staging of her performance, she was supposed to walk back and forth on the stage in this trance-like state. Now, Louis had been given a budget for her costume, which she didn't spend on her costume. Instead, she cobbled together a costume from things she already owned, including a very voluminous white silk skirt. And it was so large that when she was wearing it the first performance, it kind of started to slip down. So she grabbed it and hiked it up and the stage lights hit it just right. So the light shined through it and the audience gasped. So she picked up the other side. Now she's not showing any flesh. She's just creating this illusion between the white silk fabric and the lights. She loved the reaction. Even though she stumbled upon this ghost-like illusion completely by accident, she loved the response that the audience was giving her. So trying to capture more of that reaction that she got from her audience, she put on the skirt and stood in front of a mirror with sunbeams working as stage lights. And she worked on a dance. It was choreographed. It wasn't just haphazard moves of her playing in and out of the light and seeing how the light shone through the fabric and how it looked when she lifted her arm in a certain way. It kind of waved and rolled. And as the finale to this dance, without showing anything, threw the skirt up in the air. And as it floated down, she collapsed with it. So she was a puddle of white silk on the floor. Dr. Quack closed. What a surprise. <laughs> and she felt she had to act. And she tried to find a theater for her to perform this new act that she had created, this new dance. Now, she knew a lot of theater managers in New York. She had been there for years, and one finally took a chance on her. And she auditioned in front of him with just a gaslight on the stage, and he was enraptured. And he signed her right then and there. You know what? He said, we had to give this a name. Let's call it the Serpentine Dance. So now Louis had a dance. She had an act. She had something different than anyone had. But where was it going to take her? When's the last time you treated yourself? For me, it was buying a new suitcase. I had been eyeing it for over a year. It's really nice to treat yourself once in a while. But with Third Love's perfectly fitted bras and quality loungewear, putting on your essentials just feels like you're indulging yourself every single day. I have a distant memory of a drawer full of brassieres that were not my favorites, but I'd grab one and I'd think, oh, the strap slip. Oh, that one digs in in the back. Oh, that one's wire is about to jab me. Oh, that one has spillage. But slowly over the years, I've converted my bra drawer to just third love bras. And I don't have any of those problems anymore. Every single bra that I grab out of that drawer 
is my favorite. You can find a bra that fits perfectly too by going to Third Love and taking their fitting room quiz. It's very simple. The quiz factors in size, shape, current fit issues, and your personal style and presents you with a choice of bras that will work for you. And Third Love stands behind all of their products with their perfect fit promise. If you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free. Treat yourself with something that fits like it was made just for you with Third Love. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to get 20% off your first purchase. That's Third Love. Spell it out. T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 20% off today. At 30, Loie had yet to achieve any kind of success by any standard. But those first 30 years of her life really were giving her a solid foundation for what was about to happen. Her father had taught her about entertaining and also how to spin a yarn. Her mother taught her about devotion. Her youth helped her develop an exuberant personality and give her the artistic direction of her life. And her adulthood as a performer taught her to live on very little, taught her to hustle, taught her to not take no for an answer, taught her how to be creative, how to be persuasive, and always to be working on perfecting her art. Because that's how Louis saw herself. She was an artist. And so just at the cusp of 30, Louis stumbled quite literally and invented what was going to become her life's work. And it was about to meet up with the invention of another person. But first, I want to take you on a little teeny tiny sidebar about stage lighting. Going in the Wayback Machine to the 1500s, candles had been used for stage lighting. Rows of them were placed as footlights at the front of the stage and chandeliers hung down to illuminate everything else. And that actually worked pretty well for stage lighting for about 200 years. That's when candles were swapped out for the new tech oil lamps. And those only hung around for a little while because they were discontinued and replaced with gas lamps. Gas lamps provided a continuous flame, and the color of the lighting that was showing on the stage was able to be changed by using different colored chimneys or raising the level of gas so the flame got brighter, lowering it so it got dimmer, and the control of the lighting was starting to happen. (laughs) Here's a callback for you. The very first theater to use gas lights, the Lyceum Theater in London. (laughs) Quickly, something called the limelight was discovered. You took that gas flame and you directed it at a block of quicklime. Quicklime was crushed and processed limestone. And what happened when the flame hit that quicklime is a very bright white light was generated. It was a very concentrated light, so you could direct a thin beam of it to one area of the stage while leaving the rest dark. Then in 1879, as Louis was just beginning her stage career, Thomas Edison matched up his developing electrical systems with a new tech, the incandescent light bulb. And stage lighting changed yet again. By the time that Louis was 30, most of the theaters that she would have appeared in would have had electric stage lighting. But even by then, houses still didn't have it. It would be another 30 years before half of the homes in the United States were powered with electricity. The year before this, 1891, the White House had first been wired for electricity. 
So that's where we are in our story. It's the winter of 1892, and 30-year-old, although claiming early 20s, Louis was signed by that brave theater manager named Rudolf Aronson, who quickly put her into a traveling variety show. That's right, vaudeville. She signed a contract for $50 a week, which is now about $1,500 a week. That's not so bad. And she worked on her costume, what had been uh, just the white skirt. She kind of raised it and did some sewing on it to create a bodice up to her neck. She added some trim at the bottom. There was so much fabric in this costume that when Louis lifted her arms, the fabric would go all the way up to as far as her hands would go. So then she started experimenting of putting like a bamboo rod, sewing it inside the fabric to gain that much more height when she lifted up her arms and manipulated the costume. And she started working with the troops, lighting people, directing them what colored lights they would color the light by putting a colored lens in front of it, what color lights and where the light should go at certain parts of her performance. This act really in the United States was a hit from the get go, even before her name was on the posters. That was something that she was promised. But the company only put a photo of her in her costume and called it Serpentine Dance, no name. But each night of the performance, Louis would hit the stage. The lighting crew would light her properly as she spun and swayed and created illusion after illusion with the fabric and the ever-changing lights. She used every single light that was at her disposal from the front and the back, even what we would call a spotlight that could be projected from the back of the auditorium. She used everything. She got great reviews in every city that they toured to. But that manager, he never did give her the billing that he promised. So she fought him and he fired her. He just replaced her with another dancer named Minnie Renwood, who had just watched Louie do her act and just copied her moves. But Louie wasn't going to stand for that. She had created this, and now she wasn't the only person who could perform it in a very short period of time. She did sign with another variety show in New York City while she sued her former company for breach of contract and false advertising because they were still using her image on their posters. Unfortunately, this was a case she lost. And to add insult to injury, she was forced to pay the defendant's legal bill. To help pay her own bills, she double-dipped with a second theater, something that the first theater she had signed with in New York thought it wasn't cool, but they thought they had an exclusive contract with her. That brought another lawsuit and another Louis loss. Then Louis did the suing. She sued her imitator, Minnie Renwood, for copyright infringement, and again she lost. Apparently, she couldn't copyright the dance, the movements. She could copyright a theatrical story like a play or an opera, but her act didn't have a story. It was just movement. That wasn't something that she could copyright in the United States. And that was enough for Louis. Later in life, she would say, I was born in America, but Paris made me. Louis broke her existing contracts, and she and her mother headed for Europe. But the only place she could get an engagement wasn't Paris. It was Berlin. Well, at least she was closer. She was on the right continent. In Berlin, she was not the immediate hit that she had been in the U.S. The audiences liked the special light effects, but they kind of meh the whole act. And the venues that she was performing in went from a music hall down to a beer garden. 
But through a chance encounter with an English-speaking German talent agent, she was finally headed to Paris, mostly broke, and without a firm commitment from any place to perform. She was aiming big. She wanted to be on the stage at the Paris Opera, and her agent tried to get her there, but it was just a no-go. So she kind of had to drop down in quality as far as theaters went. When she approached the Folie Bergère, she saw a poster outside advertising yet another serpentine dancer. These imitators were already in Paris. But Louis took her tenacity and powered through and demanded to see the manager. And while she waited, she, her mother, and her agent watched the vaudeville show that was being performed, including that serpentine dance. And Louis was so excited. The knockoff was nowhere near her skill level. And that night, she was able to prove it to the manager. The knockoff was fired, and the original was hired. Louis spent a few days refining her routines, plural. She wasn't just doing the serpentine dance at this point. She had four routines she was doing. The serpentine, violet, butterfly, and white dance. She worked with the electrical crew at the Folie Bergère on how to light her. And while she was doing that, her agent was able to build up a bit of publicity. When Louis made her Parisian debut at the Folie Bergère, she was an instant hit. That very first performance, encore after encore, thunderous applause. Her dancing was extraordinarily physical. She was exhausted and really, by the end of the evening, ready to collapse. But the energy from the audience and the welcome that they were giving her really kept powering her through, even though she probably didn't understand anything the audience was saying because she didn't speak French. Quite honestly, she would never, ever be very good at it, even though, spoiler alert, Paris is going to be her home for the rest of her life. Within just a few days, the formerly second, maybe third-class theater, Folie Bergère, was requiring advanced reservations to see their new sensational act. In addition to becoming the talk of the town, Louis was able to single-handedly improve the reputation of the theater. No longer was it run-down and ugly. Suddenly, it was refined and impressive. La Louis was the headliner and more and more upscale acts could be signed at the theater. So not only is her own personal life elevated and her stardom established, but she's also bringing up the theater that gave her this chance. At this point, she Frenchified her name. She was La Louis. A diuresis was added over the I-L-O-I-E so that the sounds of the vowels would be separated. Otherwise, in French, she would be saying loi, which means law. So La Louis, she was. Of the reviews that I read, these two professional reviews kind of summed up how she was received in Paris. Quote, the show is the most unusual, the most attractive, the most unforgettable I have ever seen. And another reviewer said, there is no pornography. There is no unwholesome nudity, no coarseness, nothing but the most poetically artistic. Now, Louis was an artiste. Okay, she had dropped her corsets. You could see her figure through the fabrics when the light hit it. So there was a bit of risque to it, but she was completely covered. There was nothing showing. Parents could bring their kids, and they did. Matinees were added. She was performing seven days a week. The audience went from your average Joes to titled aristocrat Josephs. In a very short time, everything changed, not only for Loewy, but for the Folie Bergère. 
and the management of the Folie Berger was kind to Loie as well. They moved her into a spacious apartment in the building that adjoined the theater and cut a door into that adjoining wall so Louis didn't have to go outside and risk catching a cold to get to work. Her stage style was soon being worn by Parisians, not just women, but men also. Flowy, colorful dresses based on her stage costumes began to appear in the most fashionable boutiques in town. And as for Loie, she was in dark, ill-fitting dresses, big baggy coats, huge out-of-fashion hats, and as much fur as she could possibly carry on her body. On the stage, she was elegant and transformative. She was a butterfly. She was a flame. She was a flower. In person, she was an average-looking woman with an average-sized body and not a whole lot of Parisian taste in her clothing. Later in life, her friends, in the most loving way, would describe her as odd and badly dressed. Now, I'm reading odd as being unconventional, which is a good thing. I've seen the pictures. I'll put a couple in the show notes. Badly dressed, it's just like it sounds. Of course, with success, there will come the naysayers. She stole this dancing costume from a particular London-based troupe of dancers, said some, to which Loie doubled down, and she kept perfecting her origin story. That's why we really don't know exactly what happened. Suddenly, the skirt that she already owned, it was a gift from a military officer who fell in love with me and sent it to me from India. Then I wore it and improvised in Dr. Quack. Sometimes she said her costume was silk. Sometimes she said it was cheesecloth. Sometimes she said it was muslin. What she never said was exactly what it was. And she didn't let anyone touch it. When people asked, she'd say, nope, that's my secret. As it's supposed to work out with fame comes dollars. Even in her first year in Paris, she was making about 10 times as much as she had made in the United States, but she was spending a lot of it. She was starting to buy art. She invested a lot in her costumes. She was constantly improving on them. At this point, she's starting to paint them with butterflies or flowers, adding color to the, the white fabric, whatever it was. She invested in lighting techniques, and she also allowed herself to be booked in other countries, which required her own lighting system and her own stage crew, people she had to pay. So as fast as she was making it, she was also losing it. And we are just talking the first three years of her being in Paris. She went back to the United States, thinking that now that she was a big hit in Europe, she could go back home and become an equally huge hit. Unfortunately, all that stuff with her ex-husband, that scandal with this third wife was still going on and her name was attached to it. And there were tons of imitators all over New York. So to New Yorkers, she wasn't that unique. She decided very quickly to head back to Paris, where she was still a star. At one of Louis's very first Parisian performances, a well-traveled, well-educated 22-year-old daughter of a wealthy French banker named Gabrielle Bloch came to her show. She was mesmerized by Louis. Gabrielle, or Gab, as she was nicknamed, and Loie crossed paths a few times, and then Gab began to work for Loie. She was Loie's body double when the inventor, Loie, was experimenting with new lighting systems or new costume elements. She worked kind of as her assistant, and within five years, Gab moved in with Loie and her mother, and she became Loie's partner. 
We don't often get to say this because the women we discuss or their heirs don't leave enough evidence to say whether they were lesbians or not. In this case, I believe there is more than enough evidence. So yay, I think that the two lived as out as they could in Parisian society. Gab was known for wearing men's suits and Louis... Well, what she was known for most was what she wore on stage. But they really did. They lived together and they worked together. They were romantically and in business joined. They were partners in every sense of the word. The only thing I really wish that I don't know is whether Loie confessed to Gab that she was actually eight years older than Gab. (laughs) Because shaving those years off her age, they were about the same age. But I guess a lady is entitled to have her secrets. I don't know who needs to hear this, but here you go. You deserve to feel better than you do today. And you can with Headspace. The Headspace app makes meditation simple. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app. And Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. After learning the basics of meditation through Headspace, At this point, all I do is say, okay, Susan, what's bothering you right now? I use it a lot to shut down my brain so I can go to sleep. There are sleep sessions that just help me drift right off. And I've used them when I feel overwhelmed and very nervous about something. And I could feel the stress in my shoulders. Three minutes on Headspace or five minutes. Or if it's really bad, 10 minutes or 20 Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier and Headspace's meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash chicks. That's headspace.com slash chicks for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal being offered right now. So head to headspace.com slash chicks today. La Louis, the Louis, so that it's differentiated from every other serpentine dancer, except no imitations. Louis may have struggled for the rest of her life, just like she had for the first part, except success is one part talent, one part skill, one part perseverance, and then there is the magical part timing. Louis was in Paris as the Art Nouveau movement, which literally means new art was all the rage. Out went fussy, old-timey Victorian influences in art and decor and inswept a gust of modernism with an emphasis on impressions of things from nature, not exact duplicates, but nature's essences and bright colors, asymmetrical shapes, long lines, curves, mosaics. Think of Tiffany Glass or Gustav Klimt paintings or Henri Toulouse-Lautrec's posters, René Lalique's jewelry or glass, or even like a poster from the Folie Bergère or even the Moulin Rouge. 
Here in the United States, we called this time the Gilded Age. In France, they called it La Belle Époque. It was an era of great excess, great advances, lots of new modern technology. And Louis, who was called La Fille Lumière, the light fairy in Paris, embraced all of that. She was no flash in the pan in Paris either. She stayed on the top of her game by consistently upping everything she did from movements to costumes to staging and lighting and wanting to avoid the copyright mess that she had in the United States. She put together a French legal team to help her patent her physical work. She couldn't patent the movements because there was no story, just like in the United States. And quite honestly, she wouldn't have argued that. She had said, quote, dancing is movement made beautiful. Every dance has its meaning, but your meaning is not mine, nor mine yours. You must express yourself your own true self. So there was no universal understanding of the dances. So she was okay with that. And the law was slow to catch up, not until 1976 were dance movements able to be legally copywritten. So... She had stood no chance back in the 1890s, but there was a lot of physical, tangible work that she did that she could patent. She could patent her costumes. She could patent the rigging that was inside them. It was either straight or bent, depending on the movements that she wanted the fabric to do. She could patent her costumes, those flowing robes that eventually consisted of hundreds of yards of fabric. When she shrouded the edges of the stage in black fabric so the attention was all on her and the light show, patent. When she created stage lighting that went underneath a wooden floor with holes in it or a glass floor lighting her from underneath, patent. A mirror system that she devised so she appeared to be a collection of dancers, patent. Colored light gels that were thinner than the glass that had been used, made up of a compound that she created and could be put over the stage lights. Also, a color wheel to quickly change those colors of lights. Patent, patent. She eventually held patents on many of her set designs, costume designs, and staged lightning. Not just in France, but also in Great Britain and, yes, in the United States. Yeehaw! Take that, non-remembered copycats. When Loewy took a break from the Folie Bergère in the mid-1890s for a three-year world tour, she traveled with 35 light technicians, men who she had trained to choreograph the light just like she was choreographing her dances. Among those 34 men were her brothers. Frank and Delbert were part of her lighting team. And she also had a full staff of 12 other people that went on tour with her. It was a very costly tour, but it was necessary for her art. She went to Belgium, the Netherlands, San Francisco, New York, Detroit, Mexico. The entire tour was so physically demanding that she did have to take a break in the middle and was rumored to be resting at a mental hospital. But when she recovered, she finished her tour and then headed back home to Paris. In 1900, Paris hosted the Paris Exposition Universelle. It was a world's fair, primarily to promote French businesses and advances in culture. Loewy was so beloved and such a fine example of what Parisian artists were creating during this era, she had her own building, as did her art pal, Auguste Rodin. 
the exposition had many wonders. There was a moving sidewalk. There was the first audio recorder. There was a statue with a torch that was powered by 50,000 volts of electricity and a fountain that pumped 100,000 liters of water a minute and was illuminated with colored lights at night. All of this, the entire fair, was powered by steam engines and generators. There were 56 countries, 76,000 businesses, 50 million visitors, and only one entertainer to have her own building to showcase her art, and that was Loie Fuller. And she oversaw every detail of this building. She would go on site and instruct people what to do, and then she'd fly out of there to go do something else. She was very much a, oh, shiny object. Let me work on this project. I see something else. Hold on. I'll be back kind of person, which is why the building was late. The fair had already opened when it was finished. It had gone well over budget, coming in at about a million twenty twenty one dollars But hey, what's money for if it's not to spend it, right? But when it was finished, La Théâtre de Louis, a 200-seat theater and museum dedicated to Louis, was a marvel. There was a life-size stylized Louis statue by Pierre Rocher over the front entrance. And to perform in her theater, in addition to her, she signed an opening act of Japanese performers, headlined by an actress named Sada Yako. This troupe performed a play called The Geisha in the Night, And it was so brilliantly pantomimed that although the cast only spoke Japanese, there was no language barrier. Louise's performances were sold out every single day. She had a packed house, but she gave a lot of the credit to the actress, Sada Yoko. She said, it was a personal triumph for Sada Yoko. I gave 10-minute dances three times a day, but I just danced any old thing. I wasn't really in it. She was giving credit for all the sold-out shows to Sada Yoko because of Sada Yoko's reviews in Europe where Louis had discovered her and mostly because of her performances and reviews at the fair, Japan began to legally allow women to perform on stage. Up until then, men played all the female parts and women were forbidden to be on stage. The fair really had a predominance of tech and science exhibits. Of the 33 official pavilions, 21 of them were dedicated to science and technology. There was one auditorium that sat 2,000 people and was always full, where people could watch an image from the Great Paris Exhibition Telescope on a giant screen. They could see the new fancy technology called X-rays. And on another giant screen, people could watch films from the Lumiere brothers. The Lumieres were pioneers in motion picture development. Although Loewy was so enamored by science, so enamored that when she had been on tour in the United States, she managed to get a meeting with Thomas Edison to talk about incandescent light bulbs and lighting. Though she was fascinated by the science of it and was always on the lookout for new elements to add to her productions, she really wasn't keen on moving pictures and she refused to be filmed. Now, whether that was because she couldn't control the monetization of it or a more artistic reason, which I am going to tend to believe because I think Loewy was all about the art, but she believed that still photography was wonderful. It captured just a moment in time. But moving pictures, they were not that great. And despite how they are labeled on YouTube or anywhere, 
There are no moving pictures of Loie Fuller. There's no film of her. But Susan, you'll say, I saw Loie Fuller doing a serpentine dance on YouTube just now. And I'm sorry to say that wasn't her. Those were imitation dancers doing her dances with her costumes. And some of them actually really looked a lot like her. But there are no films, no moving pictures of Loie Fuller in existence. So speaking of science, what other scientist was in Paris at the same time as Loie? Oh, Marie Curie. What other scientist was working with an element that glowed, a visual effect that Loie was constantly looking for in her costumes? Oh, that would be Marie Curie. What outgoing, tenacious, creative woman asked Marie Curie for radium? Loie Fuller. Pierre and Marie Curie, episode 158, if you'd like to learn more about Marie Curie. Pierre and Marie Curie enjoyed going to the theater. They had seen Loie when she had first arrived at the Folie Bergère. So when Loie wrote to Marie asking for this magical radium so she could cover one of her costumes with it and make it glow, Marie politely refused. Radium was too expensive. There was not enough available to get it. And it might be dangerous, Loie. So you probably don't want to play around with that. But would you like to come to our lab and see some of our experiments? Louis said, let me get my handbag. <laughs> of course she did. Louis toured the Curie's lab, was very impressed. She asked lots of questions, very intelligent questions. She was so grateful that she performed at their home for them and their daughter and some guests. And they developed a friendship. Okay, so here's flamboyant Louis Fuller and very reserved and serious Marie Curie. But maybe it's one of those opposites attracts kind of things. And they could give her valuable scientific information. And in return, when she found out that the Curies were huge art fans, she could take them out to visit her pal Rodin at his studio. They could go together. It was a lovely day. Loie cherished this relationship, and she respected Marie's desire for privacy. A few years later, Loie would write her autobiography. And while she does name drop a lot of famous people in this book, one of the distinguished friends who she does talk about, but she never names, is Marie Curie. She referred to Pierre as a well-known scholar. He has since died under tragic circumstances having been run over by a carriage, and his wife, who was not less scholarly than he. To explain why she isn't spilling the name of this dear friend, she said, quote, I would give a good deal to be able to adequately express the admiration I feel for her. But out of deference for her own desire for simplicity and self-effacement, I must not even mention her name. Although it was a no-go on using the Curie's radium to make her costumes glow, Loie kept after it. With Pierre Curie's help, Loie built her own lab so she could experiment. Maybe there's a magical compound that could make my costume glow like there were stars. And eventually, Loie did strike the right combination of fluorescent salts that she could paint on one of her costumes that was made of black fabric. And she choreographed a wildly popular routine called the Radium Dance. And that was in 1904. The New York Public Library has a 59-page notebook of Loie's from 1911. So this is something she's fascinated with long after she's met the Curies. This 59-page notebook is entitled Lecture on Radium. She was a self-taught chemist. 
Paradium dance, everything was black. You couldn't even see the face of the dancer because of the way that it was lit, but it looked like stars in motion. And as for other stars that were in Loewy's orbit, to say that Loewy collected famous associations really is not fair. She benefited from a spectacular mix of the artistic inclinations of the era, of her physical location in Paris, of her own fame, and really of her extraordinarily curious nature. It caused her to be drawn to other artists, to seek them out, and tenacity kept them close, and her devotion to her friends kept her in contact with them. And it really wasn't like one-sided fangirling on Loewy's part. She was the muse for her friend's art. She was painted or sculpted or drawn by big-name artists of the era. Obviously, her friend, Auguste Rudin, they had a very complicated relationship. He thought she was trying to rip him off a lot of the time, but he was so amused by her. And she just kept going with her friendship with him. She wasn't shy, and she enjoyed his company. She was painted by Henri Toulouse-Lautrec. And like she did with the Curies and Rodin, she loved to make introductions. And I didn't really get the impression that it was from a socialite angle. She was a very casual party hostess, oftentimes arriving at her own party at her own house the same time that her guests were and having her guests help her set up while the cook in the kitchen is trying to make something for all of these people. And all these people happily went along with it too. But I think that she liked bringing all these people together to see what could be created from the meanings of those minds. As Paris had elevated her status as an artist, she was trying to help elevate the status of every artist she came in contact with. There was a young American dancer who had seen Loewy perform at the Parisian Exposition. She herself had begun to dance in a very non-balletic, nature-inspired, modern way. And she and Loewy met. And just as was no Loewy's nature, 22-year-old Isadora Duncan, episode 147 of the History Chicks podcast, and invited her to go on tour with her. Isadora's career hadn't yet taken off. She wanted to give Isadora opportunities. And Isadora was always on the lookout for ways to improve her career. And very quickly, Isadora kind of spun off the Loewy tour to do her own individual work. Loewy seemed genuinely pleased to be able to help elevate another artist. Louie didn't really look at it like Isadora had taken advantage of her for getting her to come on tour with Louie. Isadora didn't seem very grateful, but I think Louie was just happy. Like she was every time she put together her famous friends. Louie was aging. Those bright lights that had been shining in her eyes after years of stage performances, those years of abusing her body until she was ready to collapse. It was a physically demanding work, but she wasn't ready to quit entertainment and people still seemed enamored with her. So she created a dance school to teach her movements to young dancers. Now, she didn't share her lighting and costume tricks with them. That she kept very much a secret. So much so that when she made new costumes, sometimes she had different seamstresses and artists work on different parts of the costume so that they didn't know how it all was created. Very secretive. 
Loi was putting a lot of her energy into arranging tours for this young dance troupe known as the Muses, as well as being a go-between for her art friends and her art-buying friends and museums in the United States. I think she really saw herself as an art agent. Loi was like your friend who goes into a party knowing absolutely nobody and comes out talking about the careers of nearly every single person and managing to get all that cool information that people tend to keep to themselves. Loi knew it. During her tours in one of these moments, Loi had befriended then crown princess turned Queen, Queen Marie of Romania. She was the granddaughter of both Queen Victoria and Tsar Alexander II of Russia. They struck up an immediate friendship, were correspondents for a very long time, and one of the things that they had in common was art and wanting to promote artists. Loie also had another longtime very good friend, a socialite from California. She was an art collector. She loved to spend her husband's money. They even had a museum together. Her name was Alma Spreckles. Loie had another very wealthy friend. His name was Sam Hill. He was a railroad executive, an entrepreneur, a man who had a lot of money and lots of whims on how to spend it, including beginning a mansion in the hills of southern Washington state. World War I broke out and building on the mansion had to cease. And Sam had gone on to other projects after that. Loie had this idea to bring together her very wealthy friends and her artist friends and create a world-class art museum in this unused, unfinished mansion overlooking the Columbia River. Now, we're not talking about the Metropolitan Museum of Art that's in New York City or the Art Institute that's in Chicago or the Louvre in Paris. We're talking about a mansion on a hill in the middle of nothing but trees and other hills. It's beautiful. It's also quite desolate. The story of how this whole thing played out really is a movie in and of itself. And I'm going to recommend a book later if you want to read the very entertaining details of it. But over nearly a decade, Loi, Alma, and Sam hashed out the details of the museum. They acquired some pieces for it. They planned on finishing construction. Loie's performing career was over, and Gab was managing the touring troupe called The Muses. Loie didn't have very much else going on. This was her major project at this time. Her health was kind of rapidly deteriorating, but when she was 63 years old in 1926, she accomplished this swan song. The grand finale of getting this museum dedicated was for Loi to get her friend, Queen Maria of Romania, to tour the United States in a highly publicized culmination dedication of the Mary Hill Art Museum in Goldendale, Washington. And it happened. Loi was physically dragging herself through the process. It would be another 15 or so years before the museum actually opened. But it was dedicated. It was going to be a museum. They were acquiring pieces for it. Lots of Rodans, coincidentally, in that museum. But she did it. And like a lot of projects that we put a lot of time and energy into, when we finally cross the finish line, we kind of just exhale and everything that's been building up physically in us kind of flows out. And we kind of just collapse. Within a year of the dedication of the Mary Hill Art Museum, Loie's health forced her to be confined to a hotel room in Paris. Her friends came to visit her. She was in bed the entire time. She, very weak. Her eyesight was 
really gone. Uh, she developed bronchitis and then pneumonia. On New Year's Day in 1928, she received a telegram from her friend, Queen Marie, that said, quote, Goodbye, Louis. La belle Louis, my most beloved. A few hours later, with Gab by her side, Louis Fuller died on January 1st, 1928. She was 65 years old. Per her design, there was no religious service. There was a funeral, and it was attended by authors and artists and actors and officials from several governments. Loie's body was cremated, and she's interred at the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. And then she was mostly forgotten in history. Her contributions to modern dance, stage lighting and design, and costuming were still being used, but they went uncredited. Isadora Duncan got all the glory as being the mother of modern dance, and Louis Fuller was a footnote. But in 2018, when staging her album for her Reputation tour, Taylor Swift herself paid homage to Louis in the staging of her song, Dress. And on a giant screen behind the Louis-inspired dancers with their flowing dresses held up by rods, creating illusions behind Taylor singing the song, on the screen it said, In honor of Louis Fuller, 1862 to 1928, pioneer in the arts, dance, and design, and who fought for artists to own their own work. And that is it up till 2021 and the story of Loey Fuller. I hope she's not forgotten. I feel badly that I covered Isadora Duncan before Loey Fuller. I, that makes me feel bad. But um, I hope that Loey is remembered. Okay, so it's time for media. Before I get to the books, I want to tell you a little story. Last year, while I was researching Isadora Duncan, I first encountered Loey. And I was sort of fascinated by Loey at the time. Shortly after I had been introduced to Loey, we received an email from a man named Stephen B., who was writing on behalf of his friend, an author, who had just written a book about Loey Fuller, suggesting that we cover Loey Fuller. And I thought, that's interesting. Then he said, I have a hardback copy of this book. I will be happy to send you if you give me your address. That very day, both Beckett and I received hardback copies of this very book from the publisher. It had nothing to do with either Steve. It was just something the publisher's doing, and they uh, publishers do this a lot. We're really not a great source for publication publicity for books because the books have to line up with our schedule and women that we've already been studying. And quite honestly, it never happened. But I opened this book up, and I read just the introduction stopped, went back to my email, and wrote my own fan letter to the author, Steve Wiegand. Why? I read this one sentence in the introduction that just made me chuckle. He had me at the fourth paragraph. Steve, you had me at the fourth paragraph. He was describing the Mary Hill Museum. The hills that crowd behind it are baked in unvaried golden hue. The color evokes thoughts of Van Gogh paintings from the south of France and or Twinkies, depending on one's artistic or gastronomic predilections. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Anyway, that book is called The Dancer, The Dreamers, and The Queen of Romania, How an Unlikely Quartet Created America's Most Improbable Art Museum by Steve Wiegand. And it is specifically about the story of the Mary Hill Museum being established by... Loie and her friends. If there's any book that you read that I'm recommending today, this is the one I want you to read. There's a lot about Loie in it that I wasn't able to cover. I didn't talk too much about the Mary Hill Museum. I didn't talk too much about the Queen of Romania. 
Um, but this book is just so entertaining. It was just so much like the way we present history here at the History Chicks. So I think you should really get your hands on that one. It's really good. And this is not publication publicity because it was published a year ago. Okay, as for other biographies, a real full biography of Loey Fuller that I used, and as far as I can tell, maybe the only one that's out there. It's Loey Fuller, Goddess of Light by Richard Nelson Current and Marsha Ewing Current. My new friend Steve Wiegand <laughs> suggested I get my hands on that, and I did, although I had to I had to buy it. My library didn't have it, couldn't find it. And it was about $70. So it was worth it, though, because I, I really love Loie, obviously. And um, I learned a lot about her from that book. Another book I found very helpful, if only that I was able to hear Loie's voice and the way her mind worked and a lot of her personality, 15 Years of a Dancer's Life, with some account of her distinguished friends. It's Loie's autobiography, and you do need a salt shaker nearby, but it is a delightful, quick, and entertaining read. Uh, if you're coming to Loie with a lens of dance history, this is the book for you. It's called Body Stages, The Metamorphosis of Loie Fuller. It was written by a team at La Casa Ensenada in Madrid. It's a cultural center. There are lots and lots of photos in this book. So that was a good one. Another book was Traces of Light, Absence and Presence in the Work of Loie Fuller. And it's written by Ann Cooper Albright, who is a professor of dance history at Oberlin College, I think. This is looking at Loie's life from a dance historian's perspective. Along the same lines as my new favorite book by Steve Weekend is Radiant, The Dancer, The Scientist, and a Friendship Forged in Light by Liz Heineke. It is creative nonfiction, so it truly does read like a novel. And it is about the relationship between Loey and Marie Curie, which was very curious to me. They got along so well, and I'm glad they had each other in their lives. There is an audiobook available. It's an Audible exclusive. It's called The Electric Fairy. It's about an hour. It doesn't go so much into Loie's upbringing um, and details, but it does go more into the story of Edison and how, how Edison's discoveries and incandescent light helped Loie. She was just the right person at the right time doing the right thing with this new technology that was available. Also in it, the person who's reading it must speak French because she pronounces her name Louis Foulard, which I couldn't do. I mean, I could, but not my thing. Uh, if you had a French accent, I guess Louis Foulard would be the way you'd say it. If you're out and about in the Glendale, Washington neighborhood between March 15th and November 15th, you can visit the Mary Hill Museum of Art. I'll link you up on the show notes if you want to check out their online exhibits, which includes one of chess pieces that are in their collection, which sounds a little dry, but um, it's very well done. And in the Mary Hill Museum's collection, there are 87 pieces by Auguste Rudin. And if you do go there, please share a picture on Instagram and tag it History Chicks Field Trip because this place is stunning and I would really love to see it. And I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be getting out to Washington anytime soon. I'm going to link you to an article about balloon frame houses and also one about Ben Fuller's balloon frame house in what is now Hinsdale, Illinois. There is 
a documentary that's in production. It's called Obsessed with Light. It's about Loewy. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's currently in production. I'm going to link you up to their Facebook page and their website, which is beautiful, uh, for more information to keep an eye on that because you really need to see Loewy dancing. And I, my words aren't going to do it justice. There is a historical fiction, heavy accent on fiction, about Loewy. It's called... Uh, it's from 2016. It's called The Dancer. A little side note, Lily Rose Depp, who is the daughter of Johnny Depp and Vanessa Paradis. I think that's how she pronounces it. She was 16 at the time of this, and they cast her as Isadora Duncan. And I thought she did a great job. She really embodied the mm, free spirit of Isadora Duncan. But as far as the rest of the story goes, if you are looking for a biopic about Loie Fuller, this is not it. And as far as I can tell, you can only rent it on Apple TV for four bucks, which is what I did. But the dance sequences, the Loie Fuller dance sequences will blow you away. And you will see and understand why she was so captivated, why people were so enchanted and just amazed by the dances that she did. They do a fantastic job with those in this movie. Now, everything else, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Uh, you know, we are, Beckett and I generally give a wide berth to fiction and movies about our subjects. We, you'll need to change the story a little bit for drama. But did you really need to have her fluent in French right from the beginning? Did you really need to have her father murdered out in the woods in a bathtub in front of her when that isn't even she wasn't even in the same country as him when he died and that is not how he died so that is just two things that they changed for the story i mean production value super high it's a very beautiful movie and that's the best i can say about it and while the movie the dancer showed loey uh having a romantic relationship not just with gab but the heavy duty romance that was shown in the movie was with a man as i said earlier i am firmly on team lesbian for this one and i'm going to link you to a couple articles that talk about loey's queerness in her art as well as in her life and that's all i have i'm going to leave you with a quote from steve wiegand's book her life overflowed with exclamation points. She was wildly ambitious, but rarely finished one project before dashing off to another. She was bubbly, naive, and overwhelmingly charming, so much so that she made many people nervous. But her ditzy demeanor belied a scientific bent that had led her to innovations in stage lighting, costuming, and choreography. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you like what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review on whatever podcatcher you're using. You can always join both of us in our private Facebook group, The History Chicks Lounge, where there seems like there's something going on every day from themed bakes to trivia to toot your own horn Tuesday. Always conversation to be had. You can tweet at me on Twitter. You may be able to get Beckett on Instagram. She's the one that controls that. If you are interested in joining us for either our tour of London in August or coming to join us for the Locals Meetup in London on August 7th, go to our website and click on the link to Like Minds Travel in the show notes. I think there was just a cancellation for the trip. So if you really wanted to go, now's the time to act on that. We would love to see you there. Is it going to happen? I hope it's really going to happen. I'm believing it's going to happen. 
The break music today was Spinning Daydreams by Alan Marchand. And our end song is Dance Forever by Kieran. Till next time. the last stage coach it was the last stagecoach shop it was the last it was the last stagecoach it was the last stagecoach stop it was the last stagecoach it was the last stagecoach stop it was the last stage 
Holy <laughs> Susan. <laughs> <laughs>